Um, we've been, wow, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for nine months. I know not every single Sunday was on 1 Corinthians, but this has been a long, long journey. I don't know about you. I've been super blessed. I hope you have been as well. I hope you've been challenged and encouraged as well. Um, today, we're going to wrap it up with this entire chapter. And now this chapter can be broken up in different ways, but um, you know, I, I thought we would conclude and wrap things up today. We have four guest speakers coming in, so I thought it would be a good time for us to finish this series. So let me read through this chapter. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up that he may, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence." for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And that concludes the letter to the, the Corinthian church, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. Now, I, I know when we read this chapter, it's, um, it can seem challenging because it kind of seems like just this whole collection of miscellany, right? It seems like in chapters 1 through 15, we've already kind of gone through the hard-hitting stuff and of uh, Paul dealing with division in the Corinthian church, sexual immorality, um, food offered to, to um, uh, idols in the pagan temples, um, 
uh, you know, the resurrection, and some people claiming that there was no resurrection. Um, communion, and, and how they were to take communion, and the problems that they were having in their communion. It seems like Paul, it, chapters 1 through 15 is the meat of this letter, and it almost seems like chapter 16 is like this, this uh, mopping up operation of miscellaneous things that can be so easy to skip over. But we would be amiss to do that because there is so much that we can learn, so much that we can um, discern out of God's word for us, for the church, from this final chapter. Now, let me make this one distinction as well, that when we read the Bible, it's important for us to understand two things, to understand what we're reading if it is prescriptive or if it is descriptive. This is a really important thing when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Is what you are reading prescriptive or descriptive? Now, what do I mean by that? What theologians mean by that is if something is prescriptive, it, it, it's, um, to put it in, it, it's, it's more direct. It's, it's something that seems much more clearly like, oh, this is something the Bible is clearly saying that we are to do as Christians. For example, when Jesus tells us to forgive, even our enemies. That's prescriptive. It's like a prescription, right? When a doctor writes you a prescription, he says, here, get this medicine, take this, do this. It's not a suggestion. It's a prescription, right? Jesus says, we are to forgive our enemies. That's something that we are to do. When he says that we're to love our Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves, that's a prescriptive thing. Go and do that. Now, there are other things in the Bible that are more descriptive. Now, these are things that we read that we need to exercise more discernment to understand what God is trying to say through that and if there's something that he's trying to say to us specifically. Like, for example, here in this chapter, Paul says he, traveled, he was going to travel through Macedonia. Now, that doesn't mean as Christians that we all, in obedience to the Bible, need to go travel through Macedonia. Although it might be nice, European vacation. The Lord tells me I need to go. Let's go. Let's book that ticket. Time to go to Europe. But, but that's, that's not how we read the scriptures, right? That's something that Paul did that's descriptive of his ministry, of something that was going on in the Bible. But we need to go and look at that and not say, well, it has nothing to do with us. But we need to read it and say, is there something here that God is trying to tell us or explain to us through these descriptions that we read about. Oftentimes, narrative is like that. Often, oftentimes. So we need to understand the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Now, a lot of chapter 16 seems descriptive, but there is a lot that we can also learn from this um, as we take a look at, at, at this picture of what life was like for Paul and in the church, in Corinth and in the Mediterranean at that time. And what I want to highlight here is this, the emphasis, two emphases, on the local church, the importance of the local church in Corinth, but also the importance of this greater global church that all Christians are a part of. We see a picture of the local church as well as the global church here in this chapter. Let me, now, before jumping into that, let me give a little synopsis here of what's happening in the first few verses. Paul says here in verse 1, now concerning. This is the fifth now concerning that we read in the first letter to Corinthians. So starting from, what is it, uh, chapter 7, I believe, 
the Corinthians had written, Paul started to address these different questions that the Corinthians had for him, whether it was about the resurrection or communion or, or marriage and, and singleness and things like that. They addressed different questions to him. Now, there was a question, and it had to do with the collection for the saints. Now, what was happening here was that um, there was a famine that was affecting Jerusalem. It was affecting the churches in Jerusalem. There were many poor believers there, and they did not have enough food. They didn't have enough food. They were really suffering and struggling there. So what Paul was doing is he was going around these different churches and places that were not struggling in that way, that were more well-off, and he was going and basically fundraising to bring these funds to Jerusalem to help the church that is there. That's what he was doing. That's what's happening here in verses 1 through 4. And there's some things here that, that I would really want to highlight here. On verse 2, he says, on the first day of every week. Now, that's a really important phrase. Why? What's happening there? He tells them, on the first day of every week, when you gather together in worship, everybody brings a donation and we collect it, we put it in the church treasury, and then when Paul comes, he would take it and bring it to Jerusalem, or he would send people to Jerusalem with these funds to help the churches there. But that's really, really important here on the first day of every week, because this is one of the verses that shows us that the church was gathering together weekly on Sundays from a very, very early time. It was happening already here, in the Corinthian church and in these other churches in Galatia, I, I would imagine in all the Christian churches of that time, of the New Testament time, they were gathering together weekly on Sundays to come together to worship. Sunday was the first day of the week. We see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So again, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the people were gathered together. What were they doing? They were breaking bread. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper together to remember his death. And Paul was talking with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching, preaching. They were basically doing church together. They gathered together on Sunday to worship the Lord, have communion, receive teaching, and to be the church. In Revelation chapter 1, John the apostle says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is the first reference to Sunday being the Lord's day. And apparently it had become something that, that the churches, they understood that Sunday is the Lord's day. This is a day that we set aside for God to come together as the church, as a community. And this is something that the church has been doing for 2,000 years, ever since the times of the early primitive church. The church started to do this right away. Why? Was it because they believed that Sunday was the new Sabbath? And, and just like the Jewish nation in the Old Testament had to keep Sabbath, now as Christians, Sunday is now our Sabbath and we keep Sabbath? No, that's, that's not why. Because we can't keep Sabbath because the law as well, all of the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, 
Not like put down those fries or those chips aren't good for you, but Old Testament mosaic law about what you could or you could not eat. Or with regard to a festival, meaning uh, going to Jerusalem three times a year for certain festivals that Leviticus said that they were supposed to do. Or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul is saying is that all of the old Mosaic law, the Torah, everything, it pointed forward to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The law pointed forward to Jesus, and Jesus came because he fulfilled the law. We no longer need to keep the law in that way anymore. This is why we don't offer any animals in sacrifice anymore. This is why you can wear polyester blends in your clothing. This is why if you have mold or mildew in your house, you don't need to have a priest come and look at it and possibly condemn it. It's not good to have mold in your house. You should clean it up, but you could, I guess, do it at your own pace or leisure. There, there are Old Testament laws that no longer are in effect because Christ has fulfilled them, including the Sabbath. In fact, you couldn't even keep Sabbath if you tried, not working on Sundays. You couldn't do it. If you really were to keep Sabbath on Sundays, that means after church, you can't go out to any restaurants. You can't go eat anywhere on Sunday because if you do, you're encouraging people to work. Somebody's got to take your order, got to cook your food, got to clean up after you. If you order delivery, somebody's got to bring it to your house. You can't go shopping, whether for clothing or to the supermarket for groceries, because somebody's got to open up that store and be a cashier and work there and help you with your orders and what you're buying. You can't go out and view any entertainment. You can't go to the movie theaters. You can't go do putt-putt. You can't go golfing. You can't do any of that stuff, because somebody has to go and open that place up and run the establishment and play the movie for you. You can't call customer service. Because somebody has to pick up the phone and has to work. In fact, I don't even, I can't imagine that you'd even be able to use the internet. Because no matter how automated things get, somebody's got to be running something behind the scenes for you to be able to use the internet on Sunday. Somebody's got to be there doing something, making sure it works. So somebody has to work. You have to encourage somebody to work and to break the Sabbath. I don't think you can make a phone call. Somebody's got to run the telecommunication centers. We cannot keep Sabbath. Sabbath was something meant to be kept by an Israel, which was a theocracy, an entire nation under the rule of God that would entirely shut down on the Sabbath. But now in Christ, the Sabbath has been fulfilled. The Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, which is why anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, we experience rest. Our souls experience rest in Christ. And when Jesus returns... With the new heavens and the new earth, there will be that permanent rest that we all enter into. No more labor, no more toil. Why then did the church gather on Sundays? Why did they do this so early, right away, it seems like? Well, because that was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. In John chapter 20 and in all of the gospels, we see this emphasized on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus appeared to them on the first day of the week. 
Jesus appeared to them on Sunday, on the day of resurrection. And this is why the church for 2,000 years has been gathering together on Sundays, the day of Jesus' resurrection, in order to come together and to worship the Lord. They did this because they thought that it was valuable to, to come all together the one day in the week when we are the visible body of Christ, every part of the body. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're the body. Some of you may be an eye or an ear or a nose or a foot. When we come together on Sunday, when we gather and assemble, it's the one time a week we see the entire full body of Christ with Jesus as our head. That's why they gathered together every week. We gather together in order to worship God, not just at home alone with your guitar or playing that music in the background, which is a wonderful thing, but God loves it when we gather together in one voice to worship him. In fact, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation before him worshiping God. And God loves the glory that he receives when we worship him as one body together. We gather together as a church in order to be able to love each other, to do things that we cannot do in the same way apart. We come together to love each other, to pray for one another, to see how somebody is doing and if they're down, to encourage them, to lift them up. In fact, this is why in verse 7, Paul said to the Corinthians, I don't want to see you just now, now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Paul desired not just a passing relationship with the Corinthians, but he desired a deeper relationship. He desired to spend time with them. Brothers and sisters, when we gather together as a church, do you just come and spend time with people in passing? We can do that. You know, we do that sometimes when we come together. We say, I come together, I, I sing a few songs, I listen to the message. When it's over, I'm out. And our the people around us is simply in passing. Or is our desire, is your desire to go deeper in your relationship with people? To go deeper, to truly be able to spend time with them and to love each other. This is why we come together as a church. We come together as a church to have communion together and not just at home by ourselves. Communion is meant to be done together in the community, in the communion of God's people. And I also think... The church did this because even though Sundays, it was not meant to replace the Sabbath, I think that there was something good that the church saw in the weekly rhythm that they had of worshiping God on the Sabbath day during the time before the coming of Christ. I think they saw something good and valuable in that rhythm, and they wanted to continue that and to come together in weekly worship and loving each other, and being the church of God. And this is, this is worth emphasizing, brothers and sisters, because we, you know, we've been rocked by COVID and, and, and online worship, the rise of online worship, and now with things like worship from, you know, um, not, I was going to say worship from home, <laughs> work from home, which can easily become worship from home, where some people are, like Hebrews says, we're beginning to neglect meeting together. And, and, and that's, that's, there's a slow drift that can be easy to fall into because a lot of people like working from home because you don't need to deal with people. You can stay in your pajamas. You could just work from your bed. It's so convenient. And there could be a, this temptation to neglect meeting together because, you know, sometimes in church, 
There are some difficult people. Ah, maybe you don't feel like talking to people. You're more introverted. There are all sorts of reasons. You don't want to get dressed. You like your robe. Your robe is really, really comfortable. But Paul says that we are to gather together weekly. That, that's what we see here descriptively from the church from the very beginning. They gather together weekly in order to worship God. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to a local church, friends. He valued the gathered church, the local church. So much of the, what he was talking about throughout this entire letter was about what was happening when they were together, when, how you should worship, how you should take communion, how you should treat each other when you are together. We are to be a body that comes together in weekly worship of God. This is so important. The local church is the hope of the world. I don't think it's good for anybody to walk away from the local church. I don't think it's ever done anybody any good to say, you know, I'm just going to do solo Christianity, solo spirituality, and just worship God on my own at home. That doesn't do anybody any good, and it's certainly not the biblical design that we see of coming together as the local church. Now, Paul emphasizes the importance of the local church, but on the other hand also, to be balanced with it as a part of it is also this concern for the global church, for the bigger church, for what we talk about every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, when we say the Catholic church, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic church. We're not talking about the Vatican. The word Catholic means universal. It means believers of all, of all time. And in every place, that's why we don't use universal, which can mean everywhere. We also mean in the past, present, and in the future, all believers. The Catholic church in that sense is also the church that we are a part of. And look at verses one through four. Look at what Paul is telling them to do. It's all about them taking their finances and contributing to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Some people may say, well, why should we care? about a church in Jerusalem? What about the needs of the church in Corinth? Certainly, they weren't rich. They had their own needs. There's always more things that they could do to focus on the church at home. But Paul said, no, we need to care about the church in Jerusalem as well. We need to, be, we need to recognize that we are a part of a global body. That's why we as a church, we try to do this as well. Right now, we are financially supporting churches in India in places where it's difficult for the gospel to be preached. We're supporting a church there with a Bible school as it's training up local pastors to go out and plant other churches and doing a wonderful work. We support our, our brother Alessandro out in Italy who is ministering and reaching out to a Filipino bedroom community one hour away from Rome. Filipinos who are there found themselves immigrated there to work as he ministers there and is trying to also reach out to college students in Rome. We're supporting that ministry. We're supporting the church, La Gracia Church in Guatemala. We care about that church as well. And the ministry in their church, the ministry through their international school and what they're doing down there. Why? Because we are a part of this global church. We are a part of this bigger family. How do we do this? What is the source of this support? Paul tells them to support them financially. And he says, as he may prosper, as he may prosper. What that means, friends, is Paul is saying, you know, 
basically, the, the worldview, the perspective that Paul is giving them is this. It's that of stewardship. That in which you see that everything that you have received is from God and that we are called to be a good steward of that and to see that it all belongs to God. And we are to steward our resources in that way. Um, in, cha- in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthians when he says, store up, um, take this offering for the church in Jerusalem as you may prosper, what he's saying is, you know, if, if the Lord has blessed you with more one week, set aside more for the church in Jerusalem. If he hasn't blessed you with as much, it's okay that you set aside less. But the perspective there is that we are stewards and everything that we have is from God and belongs to the Lord. Is that your perspective of what you have and of your finances? The stewardship, does this perspective inform your generosity and your commitment to the global church? Not only through our finances do we support the church, but also through our going ourselves. Not just sending people, but going. Not just through sending money, but through sending people by going ourselves too. Paul here in verses 8 and 9, he says that he wants to go to the Corinthians, but he's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because God gave him very fruitful ministry to do there. God opened a wide door for him there. So Paul limited his relationship. His relationship with the Corinthians was constrained because of another opportunity that God gave him to do work in Ephesus. So brothers and sisters, the point of this is that as much as our relationships are important, they are not the only thing. We must balance that also with the mission of God to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Relationships, our fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, it is super important, it is super valuable, but we are not to idolize them. Sometimes we need to be apart. Sometimes we need to make sacrifices. Why? So that we can go for the sake of the gospel to the ends of the earth for the sake of the mission. This is really important as well. It can be easy to idolize friendship, something that is good, even fellowship within the church. We do that sometimes because, right, people come in the church and we're just coming and we're looking for that great group of friends. And we know that we're idolizing things when, when this group of friends becomes so important to us that once you find it, you feel like I've achieved perfection and you actually don't even want anybody else to come in that group of friends. And we form, what do we call it? A clique, right? We form a clique. Many of us have experienced what it's like to be in a church with cliques. Many of us have experienced what it's like to not feel welcomed into a relationship with other people. We felt like we were shut out of that because of how um, protected this group of friends was. We can turn it into an idol as well. Brothers and sisters, some of us will even be called to leave our friendships, our relationships here, 
whether it's to go out to, onto the mission field or maybe to plant another church somewhere near here. But for the sake of the gospel, we recognize that, hey, I may not be able to see you as much, but it is for the sake of bringing the gospel to other places, to people who need to hear it. I'm so excited that we're sending seven people down to Guatemala this summer to care for the La Gracia Church and the AMI International School down there. That's only 10 days. It's not that long. We're going to see them back really soon. But I'm thankful that these brothers and sisters are willing to sacrifice of their time and of their energy to go for the sake of the gospel for the global church, to care for La Gracia Church down in Coban, Guatemala. The global church is something that needs to be on our radar as well. Now, here's the thing too. So as a church, as we seek to do God's work, not just here locally, but also globally, it's so important to know which doors God is opening to us and what doors are closed. Paul's ministry was guided by this, needing to know what was leading him. We don't want to go and ram our head against the door of ministry somewhere or some part of the world or in a different place if God isn't leading us there, if he's not opening that to us. We want to go where God is leading to us. We want to go through the doors that God has opened to us. Now, let me say this too. I just want to say that this open doors theology, I want to mention this for a moment because I hear Christians use this all the time talking about open doors, and, and I use this as well, but we need to be really, really careful about this. Why? Because it's so tempting for us to say that, you know, God has opened a door for me. That's something that God has given to me. And usually, oftentimes when we say that, that open door can be in alignment with something that we desire out of our flesh. You know what I mean? It's so easy when something is more comfortable, maybe it pays more money, whatever it might be, it's easier to say, oh God, God's opened that door for me. We, we have a tendency to do that. Oh, God must want me to go and take that job. It also happens to offer a lot more money, but regardless of the fact that that job is gonna drive you so into the ground that you're gonna sacrifice your family, your relationships with other people, your relationship with God because of that job, we don't consider that because it pays more or it's more prestigious. Oh, therefore, God must have opened that door. But if there's something in life that's harder, we often think, oh, that can't be from God. God didn't open that door. Notice what Paul said here. God opened a really wide door. And guess what was behind it? Many adversaries. What do we do when we open a door? We see many adversaries. We go, ah, we scream, we shut that door. That's not from God. Get behind me, Satan. That can't be from the Lord. There are many adversaries there. That's hard. It's like what Pastor Keith talked about last week, that, that brother in his church who took a one-third pay cut in order to be able to serve the Lord better. That can't be from God. <laughs> a one-third pay cut? That door can't be from the Lord. Or how he's talking to that person who felt like the, the purpose in life is to buy a house in a good school district. God, that can't be from you. There's no good school district there. How can I go there and do ministry for you? And we assume that that door is one that God has not opened. 
We have to be very careful about this, brothers and sisters, when we so flippantly say, God opened this door or God closed that door. You know, Jonah, when he was running from God, when he didn't want to go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites, you can just hand me the mic, Adam. It's okay. I don't need the boom. When, jo- when Jonah was running from God because he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites, he was able to go down to the port to find a ship going in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He was able to buy a ticket. He was able to get on board. And it's easy for us to say, well, did God open that door? No, obviously God didn't open that door. But the doors were all opened for Jonah to be able to do all of that even while he was running away from God. Brothers and sisters, Satan can open doors as well. Recently, there was a man who opened the door on Asiana Airlines flight in midair. And through, I don't know, several harrowing hours or however long it took them to get back on the ground, people were sitting there losing oxygen midair because this man said he felt uncomfortable and decided to open the door. There's an open door. Should we go through that one? Obviously, obviously not. How do we know then if God opened a door for us or not? Whether for you individually in the decisions that you make or for our church in where God is calling us to serve. Well, we have to ask ourselves several questions. One, does it conflict with Scripture? Two, am I truly seeking the will of God? Or are there ulterior motives in my heart as I'm making this decision? Three, seek godly counsel from others in your church who love God and who know you and can speak into your life. Three, uh, four, pray and fast, seeking God desperately. Lord, is this your will? That's what I long for, brothers and sisters, as a, as a pastor. That if somebody were to come to me and said, Ulysses, I feel like God is opening a door for me in this area of my life. And I said, well, how do you know? That you would say to me, because I've read the scriptures, because I've checked and examined my heart, I've asked God to examine my heart for any ulterior motives, I've checked with others, and they believe that this is the will of God for me as well, people who love and know God, and I've prayed, I've even fasted because of how important this decision is. Well, praise the Lord. God bless you. It sounds like God has opened that door in your life. Brothers and sisters, we want to know as a church which doors God is opening to us as well to serve him around the world, where, where to plant the church, where to send missionaries, who to partner with, who to work with. But we need to pray in order to seek God's will for that. I want to challenge you. I want to make, you, make a plug for you to come out and pray with us on Tuesday nights as we seek God's will, as we pray as a church to seek God's leading for us to know which doors God has opened and which ones God has closed as we seek to be a local church involved in a global work. Now, we also see here Paul's heart personally, his own personal commitment to the church, both locally and globally. And and here in verse 12, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, when we read that, this is one of those things. If we didn't go through the entire letter to the Corinthians, first first chapter to the Corinthians, it'd be so easy to look at this and go, oh, that's just miscellany. 
oh, yeah, I told Apollos to go visit you guys, but he, he's not going to come now. He'll come later, and we move on. But when we think about the entire letter in the context of what was happening over there in the Corinthian church, this is really, really powerful, what Paul did here. You see, here in verse 12, when it says, now concerning, this was the sixth and final question that the Corinthians posed to Paul. One of the things they asked him was, can you send Apollos? Can you send Apollos to us? That seems straightforward. Why not? Well, earlier in chapter 3, there was all sorts of division going on in this church. If we go way back to about eight months ago, seven months ago, there was division within the Corinthian church. People were saying, I follow Paul. And some people were saying, I follow Apollos. Some others were saying, I follow Cephas. Some were saying, I don't follow any of those chumps. I follow Jesus. I'm the real spiritual OG. I follow Jesus. There was all of this division within the Corinthian church. And now they're asking, send us Apollos. Maybe some of them out of this wrong motivation because they looked up to Apollos in the wrong way. They wanted Paul to send him there. Not only that, but it says in Acts 18 that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So he was a good speaker. He was a good preacher. The people in Corinth, they loved hearing Apollos get up and teach and preach. And they were like, wow, this guy is really, really good at teaching and preaching. But Paul, later on we see in 2 Corinthians, Paul recounting what the Corinthians said about him. His letters are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul actually was not a good orator. He was not a good communicator, which was really valued in the Greco-Hellenistic world back then. And there were people looking down on him. So for Paul, you know, I don't know about you, but if I were Paul, the last thing I would want to do is send Apollos to send this guy who people were setting up as, comp- as my competition, who they thought could speak better than me, to send them down there. But Paul says, I urged Apollos to go down. You wanted him to come down? I urged him to go. For Paul, the kingdom of God was bigger than his ego. The kingdom of God was bigger than his ego. And for Apollos... We don't know exactly why he wasn't willing to go, but maybe for him, seeing the division, understanding what was going on there, he also wasn't looking to have his ego stroked either. For Paul, for him, ultimately, it wasn't about his ego. It wasn't about what his name, his fame, but he was willing to do anything. He was willing to send Apollos whatever it took to build up the church of God. What an example for us from his life of his commitment to the local church as well as the global church. I'm going to skip over a lot here, brothers and sisters, for the sake of time, but I'm going to close here with verses 23 and 24, where it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul closes the letter to the first Corinthians in this way. In what way? By wishing them grace 
and by telling them that he loves them. He cares about them deeply. You know, some people say um, there is this false dichotomy that is set up of Jesus versus Paul. I don't know if you've heard this. Maybe some of you have felt this way before in your life as well, where people say, you know, I like Jesus. They picture Jesus being soft and, you know, really, really like loving, holding a lamb, you know, petting the sheep. He's just such a kind, loving God. Who wouldn't like Jesus? But Paul, man, this guy can be harsh sometimes. He can be so direct. I don't really like Paul. To say that, though, friends, is to completely misunderstand the Scriptures. Because God had the Bible written through many different authors, including Paul. Paul was one of them. Paul was one of the most significant who wrote so much of the New Testament. So when Paul was writing, so much of what he, what he was writing actually is communicating the heart of God, who God is, God's heart, God's desires. So when we look at this letter and we see Paul concluding here with grace and love, it's really amazing because we have to remember Paul planted this church in Corinth. He was the one who planted this church, who preached the gospel there and led many people to Christ and started this very church. Not only that, he labored for this church without receiving any financial support. Because he didn't want to stumble anybody. He didn't want anybody to think that he was about money because there were people side-eyeing him. He said, don't give me any money. I do all of this for free. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. And while he was doing that, he was looked down upon by the Corinthians. They were comparing him with other apostles. They were criticizing him. They were saying he's a weak speaker. He's no good. And when we look at the Corinthian church, they were walking in so much sin and disobedience, division, sexual immorality, selfishness during communion, stumbling others by eating in pagan temples, declaring that there's no resurrection. It was a mess in so many different ways. Friends, what would you have done if you were Paul in this situation? I don't know about you, but I may have decided to walk away. To just throw in the towel and be like, are, who, who are, are you kidding me? These guys are so ungrateful. After all my blood, sweat, and tears, founding this church, serving it without being paid, now they're treating me this way. I'm doing all that I can for them. Are you kidding me? And they're such a mess. They think that they're all spiritual, but they're such a mess in so many different ways. Forget it. Do you know how many churches are out there that would die to have me come and spend more time with them that would love me to come and minister to them? Do you know how many churches there are out there like that? Is that what Paul said? No. He says, grace be with you. He says, I love you. I love you in spite of all this. He takes the time to write this 16-chapter letter to them. He takes the time to visit them. He writes another letter, 2 Corinthians. We know that there was another letter that did not become a part of the Bible, a third letter. He continued to love them, to care for them. He didn't give up on them. Why? Because through the power of the Holy Spirit within him, he had the power to love them. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a picture of the church. The church is messy. The church is messy at times. We don't always get it right. We may hurt each other. We may rub each other the wrong way. You may hurt each other. I may hurt you. You may hurt me. 
That was happening in the Corinthian church. That was a part of what happened. It got written down in Scripture. But Paul didn't give up. God doesn't give up on his people. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be committed to each other, to grow in love towards each other, to see the Holy Spirit build a beautiful community here that is also touching this world and touching the nations for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Let's stand up together as we close in prayer. Invite the worship team up at this time.